There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. What you're about to watch in this room is a strange mortal combat between a man and himself. For in just a moment, Mr. Jackie Rhodes, whose life has been given over to fighting adversaries, will find his most formidable opponent in a cheap hotel room that is in reality the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and today, joined from the Fifth Dimension is... ADZ, here back again in the Fifth Dimension um, for episode number three of the Twilight Zone series. Over- of season two of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, overall thoughts of this uh, episode number three of season two? Just as an um, intro? I better just... Uh, terrible. Terrible? <laughs> there you go. I'll just lay it out there. All right, and that's that's Not a wrap. Un, unimpressive, uh, yeah. forgettable. I will not memorable, but forgettable. Yeah, I'll make a distinction up front now. I don't like the singularly acted episodes. We kind of established that that we both kind of are on the same page with that. We don't really like that because it's it, it get it tends to drag in the middle of the episode, and it's hard for one person unless it's like Tom Hanks and you know. What was that movie where he played? Well, I'll disagree because I thought Burgess Meredith did a really good job uh, oh. in season one. With, you know what I mean? With Timing Up at Last? Right. Okay, well, I mean, there was some interaction there with other characters. This just there's, there's, there's literally two people in this episode, and The King Nine Will Not Return, I guess, is what I'm comparing it to. That one was difficult for me. This one was better. I don't know if it was because of the mirror situation. And the fact that he was dialoguing with himself and that made it better as opposed to having, you know, an internal monologue going on, you know, how the King Nine return will not return was. So I thought this one was a little better just off top, but uh, I guess we should just go ahead and launch in. So I'll go ahead and launch in this. This is entitled Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room. Again, as we've already stated, this is the Twilight Zone Season 2, Episode Number 3. It was directed by Douglas Hayes, and it was written by Rod Serling, and featured music. The original score was by Jerry Goldsmith. This particular episode's original air date was on October the 14th, 1960. The total production costs, way down for this episode, which was... As a result of network pressure, I believe there was a lot of things that I read in this particular in one of the books that I have that um, the producers were really happy that this came in like set between seven to nine thousand dollars under budget. So they were really glad that they were, you know, cutting down on the budgets for this particular episode. But thirty eight thousand four sixty nine was the number for the budget. And when we adjust that for inflation, it's a nine hundred percent increase. It looks more about 
$384,912 in today's dollars. So close to $400,000 to produce this episode. Again, these are just... Uh, this is amazing what they can do on the budget um, back then and um, some of these great episodes and what they can do for the amount of money that they did. I mean, they're just timeless classics. But uh, Jimbo, go ahead with the cast if you if you want. Uh, so this cast is, I'm telling you, it's pretty long. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just right? two people on here. So uh, you have Joe Mantell. He plays Jackie slash John Rhodes. Uh, you may best remember him from the movie Chinatown uh, where he played Walsh. Where he was, I think he was Jack Nicholson's uh, partner. Um, he was also in Alfred Hitchcock's *The Birds*, um, where he played a uh, traveling salesman at the uh, dinner uh, diner, uh, the bar or whatever. Uh, you also had William D. Gordon as George. Uh, he's been in a ton of TV shows such as *Bonanza*, *Hunter*, *Chips*, *The Fugitive*. And uh, let me just tell you one thing. If I had to hear Joe Mantell, John Rhodes say George one more time. <laughs> That's in the I trivia. Was yeah. To th- yeah. I was probably just throw throw my controller through the TV because he says it the entire time. Hey, George. George. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of, you know, when uh, the cartoon. Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Daffy, yeah. Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. When uh, Daffy Duck comes in, I will hug him and you and I call him George. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, just, just stop. Uh, I have it written but, down uh, here somewhere in the, in the trivia here. Uh, how many times... I think. Oh, here it is. Yeah, it was 50, he says fifty-six times, and twenty of them the are first, within the first two minutes two of the minutes. episode. That's, I was like, "All right, what's going on here?" Yeah, very, very off the top in the beginning. It's like, "Oh man." Um, let me move along to the. I, I didn't do tech specs on this one. I, I might try changing something up. This might be a little more interesting. Maybe not. Um, just the details about this episode. It, the country of origin was the United States. We stated already that it was uh, released on October the 14th, 1960. The filming locations, though. This was uh, filmed at Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studios on 10202 West Washington Boulevard in Culver City, California, USA. Uh, the production company was Cuyahoga Productions and CBS Television Network. Um, so just a little more background information on where it was filmed and uh, produced. Um, the plot of this episode goes like this. Where Jackie Rhodes is a 34-year-old small-time hood who lives in a cheap $4 a night hotel room. How about that? Can you imagine staying in a hotel room for 4 bucks a night? No. That'd be, well, it's, it's not great accommodations either. But uh, he's waiting to hear about uh, his next job as a muscle uh, that's in quotations. But when George shows up telling him his next job, his next jobs, the murder of a bar owner who doesn't want to pay off his gangster bosses, Jackie begins to have a conversation with his alter ego who appears to him in the mirror. The alter ego takes him to task for choices that he's made in his life, choices that have led him to where he's been, crime, prison, and broken relationships. He also offers Jackie an alternative. So that's kind of the overarching plot of the episode. Go ahead and launch right in to this episode number three. Anything other than the the number of times that George is used in the opening <laughs> few scenes? Anything jump off to you, Jimbo? Um, I will say one thing. I do. Uh, I will say this about a positive about this. There are several times in this episode where they use the overhead camera. Yes. Uh, looking yes. down on them, and I thought I think that was very well done. 
uh, because it just shows him, you know, pacing back and forth or laying on the bed, you know, and by him, the, by them doing that, it made him feel like he's trapped. I yeah. guess you can actually, it shows like he's trapped now. It may be uh, trapped in his own mind. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was a way to visually show that. Yeah. I thought that was a cool little uh, aspect as well. Um, I think they shot Rod's narration from the top too, didn't they? I'm trying to find it here in the episode early on, but yeah, the camera sort of pans in, uh, from the top of his, uh, hotel room. That, that was a cool effect. Yeah, definitely like that. So really, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to say about early on in the episode. I don't have a lot here. Other than he's on the phone, and then uh, he has this meeting with George early on in the episode, and then you don't really—he has two interactions with George: once at the beginning and once at the mm-hmm. end. And the rest of the entire episode is really filled with him talking into the mirror with his uh, quote-unquote alter ego and the struggles. Uh, I thought, you know, Joe Mantel did a pretty good job. He's in room number 14. I guess you can note that. That's on the phone. We can note that. that he's uh, mm-hmm. in room number 14. But um, I don't know. Do, do you have anything as far as trivia? In any, oh, there's there's the... It's not in the opening shot. It, it's maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes, Jimbo, you, the, what you were talking about earlier, that overhead shot. And then Rod, yes, he does. He steps into the camera. Yeah, he walks in. I yeah, think. yeah. Right. Uh, so that's a cool feature and uh, that they added and gives his opening narration. I, I have an observation, but I'll wait till the end to see if, okay. you, if you say it or if you picked up okay. on it. But um, I don't know if you knew this, because even though King 9 Will Not Return was the first one that aired, mm. it wasn't the first one that was produced. Oh, okay. It was actually this one. Okay. Um, so... Uh, Although King Nine will not return, this is a quote from or reading from the uh, Twilight Zone companion book by Mark Scott Zickry. I highly recommend it. It's got every episode in it, but uh, it states: Although King Nine will not return was the first episode aired this season, it was not the first produced. That distinction belonged to another virtual one-man show scripted by Serling, one man but two characters. Once again, Serling was dealing with a type with whom he was seemingly very unfa- or very familiar, the anonymous, insecure, unimportant little man struggling desperately against enormous odds. Here the conflict is a basic one, the internal combat between an individual's weakness and fears on the one hand and his will to rise to the occasion and take control on the other. Taking place entirely in a tiny hotel room, Nervous Man in a $4 room centers around the dialogue between the main character and his alter ego, who appears in a variety of mirrors. The standard operating procedure here would have been for the actor to play to his mirror image using a split screen. However, but director uh, Douglas Hayes felt this would limit the movements of both camera and actor, and that it would eliminate the performer's sense of playing to someone. Instead, Hayes decided to use rear projection. This was done by filming Mantell as the mirror self first. All of the mirrors in the hotel room set were actually rear projection screens on which the previously shot footage was projected. So what Mantell as the uh, real Jackie Rhodes sees and reacts to is exactly what we see in the finished product. So he was actually yeah. saw himself in the mirrors. That's really. So I thought that was really really yeah, cool. Yeah, that's a really cool insight. So, so they, well, they they recorded everything and then they rear projected it through the mirror and then they took the camera and got behind him and he's just reacting to himself 
in, to himself in the camera. Right. Yeah, that that is cool detail. Um, just all, by way of notation on that, though, everything I guess it's in the trivia. You may have this too. Everything is reversed, like his shirt buttons, and you know, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Like that we have technology now. Like I was thinking about this uh, a while ago. Like it, on your iPhone, when you you know, it knows it has technology to, like, say your camera's, like, off-center and you're taking a selfie or whatever, you're taking a picture. It adjusts and centers the picture for you. And that's just cool that you have that technology. And, I mean, these were, these were like, you know, the technology back in 1960. Only select few people in the world had that kind of technology to do that. And now we just, you know, we carry it around in our pocket. That's kind of cool that, you know, mm-hmm. that we have that kind of, uh, technology that, but that that was one thing that was noted that uh, I think it was in one of my trivia things like the, the his buttons on his shirt were reversed and there were some other things because it was it was mirroring um, what was being projected uh, through that screen. But yeah, that's that's really cool piece of trivia there. Uh, anything else early on? I, I'm I'm to the part in the episode where George is sort of muscling in on him and trying to. He calls him, what does he call him, like a crumb? He's, you know, well, Jackie's describing like, hey, man, like, I just got out of prison, I guess, or out of jail, and I did a three-year stint. Like, you can't have me. I'm a small-time guy. You're, you know, I'm petty thief, so, so to speak, and, like, you want me to go and murder somebody? This is, like, a, a major step. But you can see. Yeah, he said that he's, he said he's been close to being caught several times already. He says, "I don't want to push my luck by doing something big." You know what I mean? Yeah, I got no guts, George. I got no guts, and you know <laughs> he, he he's he's a nervous man in a four dollar room. Yeah, he's he's really nervous and he's apprehensive about doing this, and that's the struggle because the person in the mirror, right, is self confident. He's strong. He he's decisive. You know, he wants to escape this life, but. And I'll talk about this more at the end in my observations segment, but um, Jackie is just, he's a scaredy cat. Like, he just kind of goes along with whatever George, and and the pressure that comes down on him, he's just going to go along with whatever he's told to do, and he doesn't ever stand up for himself. But inside, his alter ego is, you know, compelling him, like, look, man, you can't keep doing this for the rest of your life. It's obviously gotten you nowhere. So that's the cool do you, struggle. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that uh, Jackie slash Joe? Do you think he was schizophrenic? I don't know. That's a good maybe observation. I think this this episode though plays to the the alter ego that all of us have. You know, all of us struggle with you know um, like a war and the good and the yeah, bad. Sometimes I mean it's it's sort of depicted in movies and and television shows as a devil and an angel on each shoulder. But really, it's an well, okay. internal I'm, war. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said okay. that because here's my observation that I don't know if you picked up on. If you notice, uh, uh, Jackie uh, and John, uh, when he's in the mirror, John in the mirror always has like a white aura around him with oh, the lights hitting him. Okay. Jackie's always in a darker thing. Okay, I didn't. Pick so up on that. I think I think I think what what I was trying to pick up with the, the lighting there is that. Jackie, look, he's a criminal. He's doing all these little jo- uh, boss uh, jobs. The guy in the mirror is like, look, you know, what about this girl? You know, we had a chance at love with mm-hmm. her. You know what I mean? Um, you know, you could have done something with your life. So I, I think there's that struggle of good and evil. And I want to say the guy in the mirror 
was the good side of Jackie mm-hmm. or John, if mm-hmm. you will, and, the, and then the darker, nervous man was the thing. And then at the end of the episode, where he basically decides to switch, yeah. you know what I mean? I think that's that's telling. But if you if you watch that episode, look in the mirror, especially in the main mirror, you can see how he's kind of lit up with like a white glow, if you will. Mm-hmm. Do you see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I see it. Not maybe not in the opening scenes when he first starts, but yeah, I think in later scenes you kind of get that distinction. And then probably halfway through, like nine and a half minutes, we get that overhead shot again of Jackie laying on the bed and he's mm-hmm. biting his nails and he's back and forth. Now further along in the episode, I thought it was really cool where. He tries to run away from the main mirror and he goes into the like the bathroom and washes face. <laughs> the closet. <laughs> and, yeah, or in the closet, yeah, and then he pops up in those those smaller mirrors. I thought that was really well done. That was really cool. That he did he can't. Yeah, especially when he tries to run it. Yeah. He tries to run out the front door and there's that mirror in the hallway. Yeah, he's yeah. like, Where are you going? <laughs> he, yeah, he can't get away from himself. You know, that's the struggle there. Uh that, that he can't get away from himself and he's um constantly a battle with himself. Um, I don't know if, is there any trivia about this particular section? Again, this episode, after George leaves, this is, he just goes on and on, um, with himself. Yeah, I, I definitely see the shadow and the light here in this, uh... Do you see it now? Yeah, when he's got his back to the mirror, and John, in the mirror, he sort of has a white, whitish glow around him. Yeah, and Jackie is sort of, kind of... Dark. Yeah, sort of encased in a little bit of darkness, or it's a little darker shot. Yeah, that was cool. I didn't notice that before. And I've watched it like <laughs> I told you, I've watched every one of these episodes probably at least three times and try to pick up on things. Um, so there, there is the famous, uh, there is the famous, uh, I guess, uh, sentence. That when he's looking in the mirror, he's like, "You talking to me? You talking oh, to yeah. me?" You know that's famous from a uh, Taxi Driver yeah. back with a, uh, or even Dirty Harry says it. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting too. Yeah, uh, I have here that uh, although Serling mentions that Jackie is thirty-four years old, Joe Mantell in real life was about forty-four years old when he made this uh, particular episode. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's not a whole lot here. This is the scene where he opens the closet door and then he sees his reflection in the closet door and then he goes to see rushes to the bathroom and splashes water on his face and then he sees himself in the mirror. <laughs> Jackie, you know, <laughs> it's got an ominous feel to it. Um so just a- along the lines of the budget, I did have uh a little bit here according to the book the twilight zone unlocking the door to a television classic by martin grahams jr sterling wrote the teleplay in response to a request from cbs cbs excuse me to write scripts using a, as few actors as possible for budgetary purposes this episode was produced five thousand dollars under budget can you imagine like hey uh, can you not spend so much money can you only put like one or two people in an episode and you by the way you have to write it and do all your other wear all your other hats, but you have to write a complete story from scratch. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, uh, do you? Let me ask you this question while we're on that. Yeah. Have you ever found out um, if Rod Serling got paid for his cameo appearances uh, or his narrations at the beginning of these? Did he give himself a salary, or was it just all for free? Since he's 
getting paid another way? Do you know? I have no way to know that. I, that that's a good question. Might want to do a little deep dive research on that. Um, it certainly, I don't know. I don't know how you would set that up. He certainly certainly should have been paid something for. Or was he just? Or since he was the creator, he probably got a bigger paycheck, and that was just. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go on screen anyway. I don't know because season two is when he actually first started doing the introdu- uh, narrations. You know, I mean, he was in the last episode of season one. Yeah, you know, at the end or whatever. But uh, I just didn't know if he had ever came across the yeah, number the, if he got paid for his narrations. I, I don't know if I've ever seen. Yeah, it. the on-screen narration Time, started. Right. Yeah, in season two, just by way of a little historical fact, the Twilight Zone was not telecast on the evening of October twenty-first, nineteen sixty. All three major networks carried the debate between Vice President Nixon and Senator Kennedy in their race for the presidency. Uh, the men compared views on the vital issues of the day and replied to questions on foreign affairs. So John F. Kennedy would go on to win the election in 1960. So, yeah, uh, the networks had to hold off their dropping of the next episode uh, due to uh, the presidential debate. Um, oh, this was interesting, too. I want to share this. I think this is it. Uh, the plot device of a man alone in a room facing his alter ego was forced, uh, who was forced to choose that would become his destiny while groping with reality was reused in the last night of a jockey when the Twilight Zone received, or excuse me, when the Twilight Zone revived in the mid-80s. Bruce Willis starred in a similar theme story titled Shatter Day. This was a tale about a man, uh, Peter J. Novins, who attempted to prevent... Uh, his life from being taken over by his alter ego, and by the time he checks into a hotel room, he discovers he has failed in every attempt. In a number of episodes of Married with Children, the character of Bud Bundy faces his alter ego in the mirror and becomes a suave sexual personality that momentarily <laughs> takes over. <laughs> oh, I'd have to go back and watch that episode. That probably that sounds funny. Um, uh, any more trivia, Jimbo from? From your side of the aisle? Uh, not really. Uh, just that you know, the Jerry Goldsmith, who did the musical score, also did the uh, wrote the score for Chinatown from 1974 um, that we've already talked about. So uh, that's about all I got for this episode. Um, and Joe Mantel, Joe Mantel played in Chinatown, and his famous line at the very end to his partner: "Forget it, Jake." It's Chinatown. It's Chinatown. Yeah, right. And it ends the movie. Um, I don't know if we've talked about the um, uh, what do you call it the um, the ending of this episode mm-hmm. where uh, I think I thought it was really cool when Jackie goes and, and he's like, "Look, I'm leaving," and he flips that mirror and it just spins. Oh yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, and he turns around and looks and he's back in the mirror. You know what I mean? He's like, "You can't get rid of me that easy, Jackie," or whatever he says, and uh, basically. What ends up happening is the man in the mirror, not Michael Jackson, but the man in the mirror <laughs> uh, actually becomes to the real life and Jackie is put into the mirror, basically signaling that, look, this ego is now taking over. This personality is now in charge and we're getting rid of the nervous guy. So when George comes back, he's like, look, Jackie, he's like, I'm about ready to skin you from limb to limb, you crumb. You know, nobody's yeah. dead at the bar or whatever. You know what I mean? He's like, he gets up, he says, look. He says, it's not done, and I'm not going to do it. He's like, I'm leaving. And he punches the guy, I think, in the stomach, and then he hits him in the head. He's like, you take your gun, and you get out of here. Punches him. Mm-hmm. He's like, I quit. I'm not doing this. He said, don't come around here anymore. And then he takes the bullets out of the gun, and he throws the gun down the hallway, too. Yeah. Puts the bullets in the trash can. 
And uh, he calls the, uh, I guess, the hotel clerk and says, look, this is this is John uh, Ro- uh, Rhodes in mm-hmm. room 14 or whatever. He says, and I'm checking out. And no, I'm not coming back or whatever. So I thought you could see the total transformation from Jackie to John. Yeah, I like uh, that, that too. Got his confidence back yeah, and all that. So. I like that notation where even his the name change. Um, just a little bit of mini bio for um, Mantel, Joe Mantel. He actually won an Oscar in 1956 for his best actor role in, excuse me, best supporting actor role in the movie Marty. Uh, for uh, it was made in 1955 it starred ernest borgnine i'm not sure of the plot of that movie have you seen that movie marty mm-hmm. i haven't either um that'd be something maybe to check out um he was born december 21st 1915 in greenpoint brooklyn new york city brooklyn new york and he died uh september 29th 2010 in tarzana los angeles california so he lived a, a, a another one of those Older actors that lived a long life and they lived well into their their nineties. Um, uh, I think I already I already mentioned Marty. Uh, he was just a he was a grinder man. He was one of those actors of that era that was in a lot of movies and television shows. Uh, he was an Austrian Jewish uh, of Austrian and Jewish descent. Uh, his original last name was Mantel, but he just des- decided to add an additional L at the end and talked about, uh, he was nominated for that Academy Award. Um, he had his first recurring, recurring role in the, in television when he was playing Ernie Briggs in six episodes of the sitcom Pete and Gladys. And that ran from 1960 to 1962. And then, of course, he was recognizable in the 1974 movie Chinatown as the character Lawrence Walsh. Jimbo already alluded to that earlier. Um, He retired in 1990 from acting at the age of 75, and he was 94 years old when he passed away. Uh, So just another one of those guys. Again, it's just hardworking. I mean, he got an Academy Award. I mean, obviously, he uh, was significant. And he was in The Birds, too, you said. And I I don't remember mm-hmm. that traveling salesman. I'd have to go back and watch again and, and see his role in that. But, uh, yeah, overall, I think, it, uh, again, I don't know, Jimbo. Tell me what you think your your takeaways from this episode is and how well you liked it or didn't uh, like it. Or... Again, it was okay. Yeah. It's uh, nothing um, that really stood out to me. I guess it's because... Um, Maybe it was due to budgetary cuts, cost, um, but it's just it's just okay. Uh, I understand the story. I understand the struggle between himself and himself or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's like something you've already seen before, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but to me, it was just okay. It's not make or break for me either way. But don't forget, Eric, that you do need to be keeping track as we go along because at the end of the year when we give our awards away uh, and we rank them our episodes from 1 to 10 or 10 to 1 or whatever, make sure you keep track as we go along. Right. Um, Let me read this real quick. I have to find this. Um, This is interesting. A little 
piece of trivia, I guess. On July 13, 1960, Bob Shuford of Raleigh, North Carolina, wrote to the Rod Sterling care of Bantam Books. Shuford had submitted an original short story entitled Behind the Glass, which told the tale of Claude Randall, a small-time crook who, after facing defeat in various forms, including holding out for bet money, is introduced to a reflection of himself who guides him into committing a number of profitable crimes. Every time the reflection gives Claude a tip, he concludes with, Touch my hand. I'm so very cold. Claude follows each tip, committing acts of robbery and murder, and the rewards grow with each passing week. Expensive cars, champagne, and a fine home. One day, Claude faces his fears, and after receiving another tip, reaches out and touches the reflection's hand. Instantly, the reflection and Claude switch places. Claude discovers he's a prisoner of the mirror, and his only means of escape is to do as the reflection did. The mirror, however, is sold to an antique store, where it is later purchased and hung in a mansion. Late one night, with a burglar about, Claude attempts to give the man a tip that would make him wealthy, but the burglar accidentally smashes the mirror, leaving Claude to remain in his cold world of darkness. Serling had written his teleplay, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, weeks before Shuford, or Shufford, mailed his submission. The episode went before the cameras before the letter was forwarded to Serling by Bantam. The coincidence... um, of a guided voice in a mirror remained a minor risk for Serling, who was unable to send a rejection letter because Shuford failed to include his mailing address with his submission. Fearing Shuford might threaten a lawsuit for plagiarism because of the submission after seeing the episode telecast months later, Serling filed the short story away. No lawsuit or further communication resulted from the broadcast. But this was another example of how viewers were submitting plot ideas for episodes that had already finished production, but not aired on the network. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. That would have been a cool episode to see, those little twists of the man being locked in the mirror. But like a, you know, like it said, it wasn't submitted in time, and it actually had, the episode had already aired. And can you imagine that? Like, getting that and... and Especially when the glass shatters at the end. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool story, and that would, that would have been cool to see uh, a little twist at the end, uh, how that would have been made. But, uh, yeah, that was just a little interesting piece of trivia. Um, my observations in of this episode, I just wrote, peer pressure can cost you your life. That was sort of my summary. Um, on a personal note, years ago, I, I couldn't help but think about this, years ago, my home was burglarized back uh, like the Monday before Thanksgiving on 2017. And um, it was by divine providence that I wasn't at home. That's what I'm going to call it. And I think that's what it is because I'm always home during the day. But four teenagers actually broke in and stole some stuff and actually subsequently went about a mile down the road, broke into another residence of a man who was home and he actually was shot and killed. Uh, as a result of them breaking in, they didn't think anyone was home and they broke in and he was killed and he was a pretty prominent guy in the, the community and so forth. He actually was a physician and worked for IU health. And I can't help but think about those four teenagers who I think the minimum sentence for one of them was like 20 something years. And the, the, 
the greater sentences were like 60 years between the out of the four of them the, the lesser was 20 the greatest was 60 they, they i don't think the the police or the prosecutor could actually pin down who actually like pulled the trigger to kill the man but they they robbed him and then they found a lot of his uh belongings in the trunk of their car later on so i couldn't help but think about those four guys and how i'm sure there was tons of peer pressure going on in, in amongst them I, you know i have this in my mind's eye you know them driving around in a car and you know come on man we gotta we gotta get some money or let's let's go steal some stuff who knows how it came about you know but uh, i can't help but think about how that peer pressure changed their whole lives you know, and that I mean, this is a great ending to the story. It has a positive ending because Jackie stands up and he he tells um, what's the guy's name? George. He tells him to, you know, basically take a hike. And he says the word I re the line I resign like he's done with that life. You know, his alter ego, the more stable guy comes out and it ends up, you know, has a nice little ending to the story. On But it's TV in real life. You make a bad decision and it can change your life forever. And those four guys who were, one of them was like 14, I think, back to my story. One of them was 14. He's going to spend the greater part of his life in jail because, you know, you're riding around and somebody pressured you into doing something and you didn't stand up and do the right thing. So I couldn't help but think about that. And I had to share that little story as it related to this particular episode. But overall, I, th I heard they were right. Sorry. I heard they were writing a short story just called nervous men in a four by eight room is that what was? <laughs> maybe maybe but uh yeah uh, my story didn't end up uh it didn't end up like this episode you know those guys have to pay for that for the rest of their life but uh, i couldn't right. help but i couldn't help but think about that as it related to this story but overall i didn't think the episode was that great it is better than the king nine will not return in my opinion uh, but is it one of the top 10 stories or episodes? No. You said earlier, or we're making, we should be making a list as we go along. Um, these first three are probably near the bottom so far. They got to work their way up. So I don't know. <laughs> the mighty Mr. Dingle or whatever he's called. That one's <laughs> terrible. That one's at the bottom, I think. But we'll, we'll get to that one. <laughs> Uh, well, next week's isn't very much better either. The one about the machines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one's yeah, so. It's a rough start to season two, but we'll get there. <laughs> Once we hit season, uh, starting at season, uh, episode five and six, it, it gets pretty good. Oh, yeah. So. Well, I think we've uh, pretty much rattled on long enough for uh, uh, an episode that wasn't even really that good. Yeah. So uh, I, think, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Exit Mr. John Rhodes, formerly a reflection in a mirror, a fragment of someone else's conscience, a wishful thinker made out of glass, but now made out of flesh, and on his way to join the company of men. Mr. John Rhodes with one foot through the door and one foot out of the Twilight Zone.